0: Okay. Good readings, all. Um, Since a few of those of you came in, we won't be having class next week. I'll be out of town. But then we'll resume the following week and mostly go on without a break. So, even though this is a new year, we're right in the middle. So we'll just start right where we are. (laughs) a blue one of course I hope it writes that's the question (laughs) okay we're ready we're at number 46 that's what I have written down here I once inquired of him of course meaning master do many Christian monks and nuns attain high spiritual levels very few he replied Of those who do, moreover, almost none reach the heights achieved by the great sages of India. Monks and nuns generally find inner peace as a consequence of their renunciation. Christian monastics, however, are not encouraged by their orders to to seek spiritual realization. Few reach it, therefore, unless they were born with already very good spiritual karma from the past. The problem is the approach in those monasteries is negative. It is what I call the bullet-cart method of seeking God, plodding along with earnest petitions for redemption, but without any understanding of how one can assist in the process. Kriya Yoga, by contrast, is the airplane route, for it teaches the seeker how to withdraw his energy into the spine and then to direct it up the spine to the brain. By following this inner route, one cooperates with the way divine grace actually works. In this way, one can achieve realization much more quickly. So, and then Swami comments, from these words and from others that I heard from him occasionally, I came to understand that orthodox Christian monks and nuns, by their concentration on attaining perfect perfection outwardly by such matters as comportment, miss the true point of the spiritual path, which is to seek deep inner communion with God. Even the practice of kneeling, though an outward gesture of humility prevents the inward withdrawal of energy and consciousness from the senses. This obstacle can be overcome by intense devotion and may, in fact, help to fan an attitude of humility, but it poses an unnecessary obstruction to the inwardness so necessary to divine contemplation. Western monastic discipline approaches the question of perfection by suppressing one's natural inclinations. This may sometimes be correct if the inclinations are harmful, but only if it is balanced by directing one's aspirations also positively toward bliss. Bliss, on the other hand, is no mere mental concept. It is God's very nature. We must cooperate with bliss and not merely pray that it be given to us we must not hope to be its merely passive recipients. Indeed, we should pray with bliss. Suppression, even of wrong desires, can easily result in blocked energy. How many pitfalls there are in the spiritual path, most of them the ego itself digs. Few spiritual aspirants, in either west or east, east shine with the radiant inner glow which comes from the actual experience of divine love and bliss. Well, that's a real depressing one, isn't it? Some of them are more cheerful. You know, the um, the Master, the whole question of Western monasticism 50, 60 years ago when Master was speaking was a, a bigger reality. Nowadays it's just retreated so far from the center of people's awareness that we don't think about it so much. But Master, not only was it more active as a concept, but we have to always bear in mind that Master sort of walked into America at a time when no one else was talking about these things, and the only spiritual tradition that was in place um, was primarily um, the Christian one, secondarily the Jewish one, but that whole way of being we were much less of a polyglot of a country also, so it was we were very much of a Christian country at that time too, and even Judaism was you know less um, well, just the whole country was more united in one way and the the minorities just made do. It was before everybody got so engaged in making everything equal. So Master was always working this way. However, he was also working um, against Kali Yuga. So it wasn't just a question of Christianity versus the East. It was the whole idea of the fact that we were just coming out of this whole um, age of the planet In which the way things looked was considered to be the way they were, and it it just the whole. If you're thinking of the universe in terms of being a material universe, then you look at the material form of things, and that's what matters. I mean, one of the, you know, the disintegrating things that happened over the last couple of generations is the frequency of divorce, because prior to that, it's just you just couldn't you you couldn't break the form. And nobody actually asked if you were really happy. And oftentimes there was an enormous amount of hypocrisy going on behind the scene. But people were not concerned with consciousness, energy, and actual experience. They were concerned with the form of things because it was just the Kali Yuga way of looking at it. And even if you were sincerely in, 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 sincere in your intention, it, it just was the way the whole world was structured. So when Master came to talk about what it meant to be really dedicated... The only picture most people had in their mind of being really dedicated was one of these orthodox um, religious organizations. And that's what it looks like. And of course, because most people came out of a Christian tradition, that's the monasticism was part of it. So it, he's, he's really hitting it on many levels. He's not really so much trying to talk against anything, it's just to make it clear um, what What is really required? And of course, Swamiji was curious on the question. Master said that some of the uh, missionaries and the, you know, the, the Christian orders that become extremely self-sacrificing in the way they serve and uplift, he said, you know, those people get very, very good karma. If they also meditated, they would make really fast spiritual progress because uh, that kind of dedication... Go so far to put aside your likes and dislikes and your preferences and your living for yourself and um, it's just, you know, it's, you, we all know, I think we've all sort of been there, I mean, in past lives, I sort of have this, you know, long, and it doesn't even look difficult to me, I'm sure it is, but sort of it's so familiar when we went to, um, happened to be in India, but it was Mother Teresa's order, so it was a Catholic order of the nuns, but living in India so they were wearing saris and so on, but so they have they have one outfit which they wear and one outfit which they walk wash in the bucket. And you go to five o'clock mass when, when we visited there when she was still alive, um you could uh, you could see Mother Teresa if you came to five o'clock mass. And after five o'clock mass then she would meet with foreign groups. So we went for three or four or five years while we were there. And uh and then after mass, all the nuns would just rush to their little tasks, and the first task was they would fill a bucket with water, and they would scrub out the one they weren't wearing, and then they would hang it up, and in this very, um, in the Indian style, concrete, barren place. But, you know, I just said, oh yeah, there we are. It just, it, that, that part of it, but I could also, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating my ability to live that way, I don't know if I could but there was a familiarity to it, is what I'm saying. But also you could see how this just becomes what you do. And inherently, it requires discipline, but what you really have to work with is something completely else. And this is also where Master really makes the point. Now, first, he's talking two levels, but um, he says, you know, it's it's not enough merely to push one thing down. How does he say it? Swami says it. Western monastic discipline approaches the question of perfection by suppressing one's natural inclinations which is, and then this is where it becomes really relevant to us because even though, you know, here we are um, in a whole new reality, this is all very, we're all very Kali Yuga influenced still. And also even if we're not thinking or realizing it from that perspective, um, the concept, all of these are classic delusions and they're, they're ones that we all fall into. So we try to suppress one's natural inclinations. This may be correct if the inclinations are harmful, but then only if it is balanced by directing one's aspirations also positively toward bliss. And that's always the, that's always the balancing point. How much of this is just what I can't do and how much of it is what I really am aspiring to do? And and you always have to walk that line because we can so easily make our spiritual life, it really easily becomes just a really negative definition of things. I, I, um, I've I been invited to be a speaker at a program that's happening here in the um, in the valley. It's some group that's... Anyway, they wanted Purushottama to come and talk about the yugas, but he rightly divined that the program, that I should do it. Anyway, because it's right here in I don't have to travel." But this woman is sort of describing this event to me and then she, she referred to, and afterwards you know then we'll, the bar will open and then we'll dance. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she described it as an after-party. She says, you know, you know, she said, an after-party, you've been to lots of after-parties. Not actually. <laughs> I've been in ashram for forty-five years. I've never been to an after-party. <laughs> it was just sort of like... But you know, when you're, when you're doing that, it's, it doesn't feel suppressed at all. In fact, you know, I was like a little tenuous, like, when will they start drinking? Because I don't really want to be addressing an audience of people who have been drinking, because it's, it's, it's not going to match. But that's, that's no, there's no suppression there. It's more the opposite. It's like, wow, am I even going to want to be in this environment? But you can see how for many people, even the mere thought of that would feel like such a, a confinement they wouldn't even know where to start. And if you, if you take an extreme example, it begins to help us to understand you know, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what is really going to help you because what he talks about here is a corresponding expansion into, um, toward bliss. But what that means is that what you restrain has to give you a corresponding expansion. You have, to, you have to have an intuitive connection with that. Someone asked Swamiji once how much discipline is enough discipline. He said, everything that you can do while, till, while, while still retaining your sense of joy... He said, at the point at which you lose your joy, even worse, you begin to resent what's being asked of you. He said, then you have to back up a little bit. Now joy is not the same as pleasure because we may make a very definite decision that I'm, I'm going to restrain these impulses because they may be pleasurable in the moment but down the road they bring me great unhappiness. So that's not joyful, that's, great, that's different because if we're just going with the flow um, we can just flow right down the sewer and into the bay and it's just like, that's easy enough to go. That doesn't take you anywhere. But at the same time, I remember once when I fell into what the Catholics who've been doing this a long time so they know about these things, the phrase they called was over-scrupulosity. And that's when you become, what just what it says, you become overly scrupulous. Every single little thing that you do, you begin to analyze, you begin to wonder, you begin to worry. And I was just making everything a test, that was the word, that was the first thing Swami said to me, Asha, everything is not a test. You know, but just everything was a test as far as I was concerned. Plus, um, I just kept seeing God's condemnation in everything that I felt inclined to do. And then he had to say to me, God doesn't necessarily want you to be unhappy. He said, that's your idea, that's not God's idea. But those are how it twists in your mind that the worse I feel, the more divine it must be. And the and, uh, crucifixion just gives a lot of heat to that idea. But we do it to ourselves. We get just completely snarled up. So there always has to be this, as I restrain myself, I feel freer. And that's, that's the key to it. You know, the different, when we were living at Ananda Village, so just without anything at all, and people would comment, you know, about sometimes about how impoverished we were and I would have to sort of think about it. I lived in this little trailer once and I loved that trailer and then I noticed that <clears throat> there was grass growing up through the floor because there were holes in the floor and the grass would grow up and it just, I don't know, it was, it was ventilation <laughs> as far as I was concerned. <laughs> and uh, two porcupines for a time lived under my trailer, that was too much. Porcupines are really, really noisy, especially, if I can put it delicately, amorous porcupines. They are really noisy. Plus, they were consuming the trailer. You know, they like dead wood, so they were just eating the trailer. That was too much. I, we, we drew the line at that point. We, we went and got those out of there. But to my mind, all of that, and to, to most of us who were living up there, actually, what we felt was extremely free. So it was just absolutely the opposite of confinement. We we didn't have any money. We couldn't go anywhere. We, we couldn't do anything except what we were doing. We were completely isolated, cut off from the whole world. We felt tremendously free. But you could see how easily the mind could take that to just a point of near panic, because it just depends on who you are and where you are. But the whole thing is that just pushing it down and down and down just um, is not going to work. There's a joke I I heard actually... It was a joke. No, it wasn't a joke. It was actually a woman talking about her own life. She said, in uh, one lifetime, she was talking about her previous incarnation. She said, in a previous, and, now, and she knows all this because now she's a person who can channel from the other side. She has that capacity. So she said, in one lifetime, I was a mother superior and I was very judgmental of everyone. In a lifetime after that, she says, I lived on the, the waterfront and I slept with every sailor who came in town. And she said, now I'm a happy medium. <laughs> so it doesn't really do us any good because the more you push something away if you are not having a corresponding sense of freedom this is what makes the path of self-realization so difficult because we just can't write down the rules it isn't about comportment this isn't about the way, you're, way you look it's only about the kind of consciousness that you actually have So, good luck to us, is all I can say. Right. Oh, the other word that I wanted to pick out of here, which is, so, I love what Swami comments about how kneeling works against the inward flow of energy. (laughs) Keeps your energy out. And actually, in our Festival of Light, there's a lot of getting up and sitting down and getting up and sitting down, which usually when I'm here, I just kind of ignore all the instructions to stand up because I prefer to stay sitting. But I remember talking to Swami, you know, just asking him, is this really a good idea? Swami doesn't just... No, he said, I, I think it'll, it'll keep people engaged, was his comment. But uh, it's important to recognize, you know, that none of that actually has a purpose in itself. That everything that we do, especially on this path, but everything that you do, is for the, for the means to the end. And you have to always ask yourself, you know, how is this really working for me? And, and one shouldn't be arrogant in that decision, because people will, uh, when we were traveling once a long time ago, I think it was that very first trip we ever took in 1970-something, um, Swami had just written that song, uh, Cloisters, Long I've Called You My Lord, Long I've Called You, I mean, it was so beautiful, and we hadn't had it very long, so it was, we were just so in love with that song. And we stopped, I believe, it was somewhere in Mount Shasta, and we were hosted, uh, Durga and Agni and Sahadev and Nalini and me in Swami's big blue car, and we they sang and I talked, and we were there, and this man had taken that song and just rewritten it a little bit. He rewrote the melodies a little, and he wrote the words, and then he sang it for us, and. And when we walked after, and I just didn't say anything, and the others just took their cue from me, and nobody said anything. We just said ah, ah, huh, like that. They said to me afterwards, "Why didn't you say something to him?" And my response was rude, but it was true. Anyone dumb enough to rewrite that song would not understand if I told him not to. You know, it's just like that was how he saw it, and so he wanted to do it, but he, the word might be rather than dumb, he just was insensitive enough not to realize that song was perfect, and he wanted it to be something else, so he made it something else. Now, that's not a good idea, you know, when somebody who has earned the right for you to respect them, like the guru or somebody who you have a reason to respect, and they say something that you don't quite understand, at least pause, you know, go neutral, if you can't go positive, at least go neutral. And don't think, just because I prefer to do it in this completely other way, I prefer to do Kriya a little differently, I prefer to do the OM technique a little differently, you know, I prefer it to sound like this, that that's a good idea. Because oftentimes there's realities, levels going on that you don't have any idea what they are. And it's better to at least be respectful enough to, you can still honestly say, this doesn't work for me, but don't say, I'm just going to change it and do it my way. If it's something fundamental. We were having a conversation um, yesterday about an aspect of Kriya, which I won't explain because it's a specific aspect of Kriya. But we were talking about the, the, way to, or the way I learned it from Swamiji was slightly different than the way it's being taught now. And there was some back and forth about what, you know, what we should do. But what I tried to explain is well let me let's let's go back and try to understand what the purpose of this is. And if we can understand what the principle involved is, then we can evaluate the differences instead of just getting the fact. It's like the point is to resist that which takes us away from God and correspondingly become more expansive. And we can't always tell, but sometimes we can, with Swamiji not with us anymore, we have to be especially vigilant, because already things get really strange. I had some woman in Los Angeles say to me, someone told me that Swami said not to chant too much. And it it was got to be kind of like an interesting little detective thing for me. And she said, somehow I didn't think that he would have said that, but they were very definite that he did. We shouldn't chant too much. So I sat for a minute and I thought, What could could possibly be the origin of that? And then I remembered that Swami wrote a very serious letter a number of years ago, which we always referred to as the chanting letter, in which he told us to remember that the purpose of chanting is to go into silent meditation. And therefore, we should always use chanting in conjunction with going into silence. Now you could finally go from that, Swami said, not to chant too much. But you see how different it becomes when master himself said that chanting is half of the spiritual battle why would swami say don't chant too much but we have to always think what you know what is the real purpose here and that that that's what i mean you can use your brain but you need to use it cooperatively with wisdom and with discipleship and respect for what's happening and that was the other word i wanted to pull out of here was cooperation because master says that The problem with the Christian missionaries is that they don't know how to cooperate. By following this inner route, one cooperates with the way divine grace actually works and can achieve realization more quickly. And Swamiji once, on a very interesting conversation we had um, on a train in Switzerland, just as it happened, because we were on a train, so we were able to talk for a long time, he started talking about cooperation as an actual um, central word that in a certain extent defines our whole path because it's, it's using all the forces and bringing them together and making them work together. And also, thinking of, our, thinking of the word cooperation means that we have to participate. And he, he was talking about how it could apply to healing, it applies to education, it applies to spiritual practice... It has to be a cooperative effort. It's a cooperative effort between the individual involved and the forces of nature if you're working with healing or with God if you're working with spirituality and with the guru. And he he proposed it never, like many, many, many of the really creative ideas he had that he proposed, he was never able to get it, it never was able to ground enough. But he he spent uh, the whole train ride and then a period of months afterwards trying to get people interested in making cooperation our primary theme, but it, regardless of whether or not it ever becomes a billboard for Ananda, it's a very interesting way to think about it because it tells you exactly that you're you're an equal part of the equation. And speaking as he was talking about the the Christian monasteries, um, often you're not an equal part of the equation, and the 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 novice the the whole Structure is sort of weighted to uh, make you feel like nothing. And Master's way and Swamiji's ways—it's very different. And he, how did Swami put it in here? He said it exactly, or maybe it's, in a, it's another. You no, know, it comes in later. But we—but so um, we're not. Let's see. Bliss, on the other hand, is no mere mental concept. We must cooperate with bliss, and not or merely pray that it be given to us. We must not hope to be its merely passive recipients. Indeed, we should pray with bliss. And this is, he was in contrast, Swamiji, I can hear him in my voice. There's certain um, Christian hymns that he grew up with that he was not fond of that just make you, I think there's one that says, you know, mold me and shape me after thy will while I am waiting passive and still. Those are the words. And there's a, it's a well, very well-known hymn, and he would sing it sometimes in a way that made you never, ever want to sing it again. <laughs> but that's, Mold me and shape me after thy will while I am waiting, passive and still. You could see how somebody could conceive of that, you know, as a positive idea, but combined with the particular melody, at least the way he would sing it, a little bit prejudiced against it, but he was trying to emphasize that's not it. And I think he says it right here. Is it here or is it in another place? He says in another one of these things, you know, no, no true man of God ever has what he calls a, fl- a flaccid will. <laughs> you know, any true, any true man of the spirit, man or woman, has tremendous power. Swami used to talk about Anandamu Ma, who was very small. I never saw her, but she was a very small woman. You see the picture of her next to Master, and Master wasn't big, and she's quite a bit smaller than him. And, uh, did you ever meet her, Shanti? And uh, Swamiji said, but when she would walk across the room, the room would shake. You know, she just had so much power. And she was the sweet, loving mother that everybody cared about, but not really. You know, really, she was, just had as much willpower as the universe. No matter how you, your personality is, underneath it there has to be this powerful commitment. So all spiritual work... If you, if you abandon the ego, it's because, not because you've, uh, you've made yourself too small to have a point of view. It's because you've expanded beyond the necessity to be so personal about it. You see how different that is? And you can see how it can go. That They're trying to uh, break you of this, this, these likes and dislikes, but that, that can't just end up making you fearful of, of being an individual. You have to become an individual guided by God, which is very, very different, extremely so. That's why Swamiji makes such a huge point about the creative arts. That's why Master made such a big point about the creative arts. What is creativity? Creativity is really when, when you are individually aligned and attuned to a greater power. And the, and the fact that creativity and the creative arts are so fundamental to our life and that Master was so creative... It's a great departure, you see, because that's really saying I as an individual have this ability to tune in and I, sh- and I need to. Swami's book, um, Art is a Hidden Message, the first time I really read that it was like, he says in essence in order to attain self-realization you must become a creative artist. That doesn't mean you have to be world-changing and have your paintings in the greatest museums, but it means that you have to have the ability to, to freely and creatively be exactly what you're meant to be and not be so frozen. I, back in 1972, I was, I'm doing this story of the chronology with Ananda. And uh, in 1972 was when Swami first brought out uh, the Jewel and the Lotus play, which is, we've done other times. Not only did he write it and present it, but he acted and directed in it. He directed it and acted in it. And then took it around the local area. We went up to Reno. He took it down to Los Angeles. And at the time, it was just, like, great fun, you know, to have the play and to have him do it. But looking back on it, you realize he committed his own energy to it and a lot of it. He was he was also showing to us, this is, this is what we do. You know, here he was with all the, his responsibilities, and yet he took the time out to rehearse the play and put it on and, you know, put on his costume and learn his lines and... His costume was what he wore every day because he played the storyteller, but nonetheless, he was still in the play. But I, I really thought about that because we look back and think, well, Master did this and Master did that. Well, Swamiji acted in plays and, of course, he sang all the time in addition to... Um, and, he, and he read his funny stories with, with funny accents. I mean, he, he put himself out in, in creative and artistic ways because that's the opposite of thinking that everything that I am just needs to be thrown away. And it's a very important distinction. So here we all are, carrying on his his fine tradition, and and it's real. Any comments or questions or thoughts about that? All right, on to number 47. What about monastic obedience? A disciple once asked the master. Obedience is important, he replied if it is given if it is given unconditionally however it should be given only to one who is wise mm. preferably to the guru who is sent by god otherwise obedience may actually weaken not strengthen the will if the devotee suppresses his nature instead of try, if the devotee suppresses his nature instead of trying to expand it he diminishes himself as a human being with no corresponding increase of spiritual awareness that is really something i mean he's just basically saying you know if it doesn't work i mean this he's he's going right at the core of a whole spiritual tradition that just values obedience above everything else you know if it is if the one you're giving it to is wise but he doesn't say who has a superior position to you in the organization and and for whom the dogma says that person is wise. He just says that person is wise, preferably to the guru who was sent by God. Otherwise it may actually weaken you, not strengthen you. I mean, most of us, we don't even, we're not anywhere near this question. But it's an important point. In other words, you have to be engaged. It's a cooperative effort. I have a a thought about that. Let me try to think where that was. You know, I, I know where this was. I was in a conversation with someone and... This was this other, This other. was in New Zealand. He was part of another ashram and he'd helped this ashram a great deal. And he was talking to me about the, the fact that the guru in that ashram, who was Indian, was just demanding that everyone just do what he said. And he was talking about how some of the ashramites would come to him in confusion about what the guru had asked them to do, but they had no means of working that out. It was either obedience or not. And... Uh, then I realized, and I did, SRF played in there in my own thinking when I reflected on it, because if you're just obedient without being able to cooperate with what's being asked of you, then you have to stop thinking at a certain point. And, and you, ha- you lose the capacity to follow something through to the end and see where it goes. Because you can only go a certain distance and then all of a sudden, you come up against, but I'm supposed to do this, and if I, if I push too much against that, then what will happen to me? And so it becomes a habit of the mind not to be able to actually reason it out for yourself. That's just what he's saying here. If you're, if you're obedient to someone who isn't wise, it can actually weaken you in the end. Because that, and where it comes to SRF was when we were engaged with them in the litigation, and in uh, whatever it was the year 2001 maybe when we really just decided it was time to stand up and we went down to the SRF convocation in August and about 50 of us and we did a demonstration outside the hotel where the 5,000 SRF people were coming and all the monks and nuns most of whom did not know that SRF had been suing us for over a decade because they, they keep things from people. So we, we sort of busted that whole thing open. And we had a rule, which is that we would discuss with anybody who would discuss with us, but we wouldn't argue. Swami made us promise that if we became angry, if even one of us became angry, we would come home on the spot. He was very uh, concerned. He didn't want us to generate anger. I said, Swami, you've trained us really well. You don't understand. <laughs> Nobody's going to become angry. And we didn't, but we'd promised. But our rule was we wouldn't argue with anybody. We'd just talk. If they didn't want to talk, we'd bless them and walk on. So, this woman that I was talking to basically just said to me, If the board of directors wants to do it, that's good enough for me. And I said, Well, you know, do you want to know what the facts of the situation are? Do you want to know? No, she said. If they want to do that, that's good enough for me. I said, Okay. <laughs> And then I said, well, we were trained differently. That was was sort of all I said, and then I let her pass. Now, on one hand, that might have been an okay answer. I have to say my feeling about the person talking to me was that it was not a good answer. It was, I don't want to have to think too far. I'd rather somebody just make my decisions for me. And that's the danger. Whether it was true in this case or not, I don't know. It was a moment's encounter, I don't want to say. But, you, but it illustrated for me the possibility of, you know, I, I want to know what's happening. I want to understand it. Swami got s- tired of me because I was that way. Once on the phone he said to me, when he was making a suggestion and I was disputing, he finally said, you're going to agree with me eventually, I should Just be quiet and think about it. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and of course I did, and I did. But, yeah... <laughs> No, they just, I, I could never, I've never been able to just say yes unless I know. I, I drive people crazy because I have to just take it down to the bottom. And once I see where it is, okay, now I'll do it. Or I'll go along with you even if I don't agree, but I understand. So, you know, we, everybody has a different balance <laughs> or disbalance. Wise guidance never violates people's free will, Master's going on to say. A superior who demands obedience of his subordinates should show respect, and I love this line, for their capacity to understand, show respect for their capacity to understand, and also for their innate right to their own free will. Swamiji, when he was in the SRF and was put in charge of the monks, he just said to everyone, you know, in my position, he had every right to exact obedience, he said, but I'm just going to ask you to cooperate with me. He said, and I'll cooperate with you, I'll, I'll go along with you in every way I can unless I feel it's harmful to the essential principles of our way of life. I mean, but, and that's, that's the... I have a little more to say about that in just a moment. It seems to me, Swami speaking now, as I reflect on this advice that subtly included in it also is the suggestion that obedience must be given willingly and joyfully Indeed, the master always said it should be. With that combination, willingness and joy, even if something one is asked to do conflicts with his own desires, and more fundamentally even with his actual needs, obedience to others can help one to develop great spiritual strength. This felicitous result can be reached, however, only if one offers his every action to God. For the goal of the spiritual path is self-transcendence, not self-suppression." It implies, that is to say, ever-diminishing identification with the little ego and ever-increasing expansion in infinity. So there we have the same thing. Mere suppression doesn't change it. You have to also be going towards something. So if something conflicts with your desires and even your needs, but if you know what you're doing and you're not really... And the difference is this. it's, It's like you know that this is a crazy suggestion. I remember Haridas, he was just such a master at turning everything positive. Once it was about 110 at Ananda village and he was all by himself on a Sunday afternoon. And the, as you know if you've been there, the dining room is here and the temple is here and there's a little foyer in between. And and there were, we had two sets of chairs. One of them were like yellow and one of them were brown or something like that. They were all all awful. But they were, I think they don't have them anymore. And Haridas was moving all the yellow chairs from the temple into the dining room and all the brown chairs from the dining room into the temple. And he was just all by himself. It's like, you know, 150 chairs of each one, just all by himself in this terrible heat. I said, what are you doing? He said, exercising. <laughs> he was always, and he kind of patted his rather portly self, which he was always a little portly. And he said, somebody thought this was a good idea. And then he said... If they change their minds next time, they can get the exercise. <laughs> he said like that? <laughs> so everything was there. You know, everything was there. This is a wacky idea. Somebody's just dumped this on me. People are just always making dumb suggestions, and then it falls on the bottom guy on the totem pole. This is a total waste of my time. But he just decided joyfully and willingly he would do it. Ten thousand chairs to enlightenment. Ten thousand chairs. To, that's, what he said. that's what he said. Ten thousand chairs to enlightenment. Ananda is about moving the chairs because in most circumstances we have just a few less chairs than we need and so they always have to be carried from here to there and from there to here. The different people who've ran the expanding light, one person ran it and they, entirely for them, it was, the whole job was the moving of the chairs. It was always about where the chairs were needed, where they were, and how we were going to get them to where they had to go. And well, that's here too. And not as bad as it was there. there. Yeah. We just take the same chairs and we shift them around. These had to actually be transported in trucks, you know, big distances sort of thing from the indoors to the outdoors. Mm -hmm. Believe me, it's much easier. But I always thought of that of Haridas because that's exactly it, isn't it? He was being cooperative or even obedient to someone whose suggestion he thought was folly. But, so it goes against his needs and his desires and his likes and dislikes. That gives you a certain freedom but not if he had felt oppressed and, or felt he had no choice or he had felt disrespected, which he could have felt any of those things, you see, in that whole circumstance. He could have been doing that exact same thing with a wholly different consciousness, which would have diminished him instead of expanding him. You see how different it is? It was a, it's a very good example. Okay. So... Ego motivation, Paramahansa Yogananda taught, is a supreme obstacle on the spiritual path. The true, this is uh, Swami talking still, is a supreme obstacle on the spiritual path. The true benefit of obedience for the devotee, leaving aside, that is to say, any question of benefit to an organization, because it's useful to have people just do what you want them to do, is that it helps one to overcome attachment to littleness. And so that's how these things start. They start as genuine and then what happens? Kali Yuga takes over and it's no longer the actual benefit of behaving this way. It becomes the form. It becomes external and, and people are no longer thinking what the principle is behind it and they end up saying things like Swami said, don't chant too much. Okay, I guess we can't chant so much because Swami said not to chant too much. Wait a minute. That line might actually have been there but how could he possibly have said that? But it just starts falling that way and there you are. This is the negative but ever necessary side of renunciation um, to overcome attachment to littleness. The positive side is its encouragement toward channeling all one's aspirations to God. The addition of a positive direction is essential. The prayerful plea that God do all one's redemptive work for, for one encourages passivity. One's will must be strengthened rather than quashed. This is where the line was. Never has there been a true saint whose will was flaccid. I love that line. (laughs) Okay. Last thing you want to have is a flaccid will. After the master's words on the contrast between the bullet card and the airplane approaches to spiritual development, he added, to attain spiritual realization, effective meditation techniques are necessary. As soon as I read that, I remembered the first aphorism of Patanjali. Now we come to the practice of yoga. Yoga. But there has to be all of that first. And that's what Master said. If the Christian missionaries, especially and the servants of the poor, also meditated, then they can make rapid spiritual progress. But it may not occur to them to want to until you first have this desire to overcome the ego. If if you have no wish to overcome the ego, why would you take on a practice that will just get rid of it for you? I've had, uh, I remember one lovely soul who came here for a short time, sort of hung out in this church for a while and then said... You know, a lot of people talk about overcoming the ego, but you all actually mean it. (laughs) Which is really true. I mean, especially nowadays when there's just so much talk about spirituality, people are always talking about, you know, all the different things they're going to do, but when you really actually have to get in there and really start overcoming your likes and dislikes and your egoic desires and start listening to spiritual authority, that's a wholly different thing than just getting to enjoy my ideas and trying to get everybody else to do them. Which is essentially what a lot of people are, are doing these days in the name of world peace or whatever they're doing, but it's really, it makes me nervous if you behave that way, so you need to behave the way I want you to behave. You need to recycle or pick up your trash or don't drive that car or, or do this, but it's all really just trying to make other people do what I think they ought to do. And I think they ought to do it because I think it's right. And it's not that it's wrong. It's that that's not really spiritual. Spiritual has to step outside of that and be in a bigger reality. Then you may still behave exactly the same way. You may still feel that that's your cause. But you do it from a place of freedom and not a place of egoic compulsion. And that's where obedience does have its real part. I wanted to say something here. Any comments or questions? All right. Um, Swamiji, um, hear this one, Swamiji always said um, that his way, his style of leadership was was to lead with consciousness. And that's what he would sort of instruct people. Lead with your consciousness, he would say. And, uh, you know, Ananda's gotten a little formal and, you know, people have positions and so on like that. I, I, I don't like it all very much. Um when uh when when uh, we had the Naya Swami initiation in two thousand and nine and all of us were trying to cope with what we should be called and whether we should actually be called Swami or not. I sort of said, There's you know, there's one Swami and it's Swami Kriyananda it's very hard for anybody else to be swamiji because there is one. I wrote to him and said, You know, I know you're not gonna like the Swamiji, but maybe we should call you the major Maha Swami or something like that. <laughs> and he i can i have the email somewhere but he just wrote back a whole series of ridiculous alternatives and then said you know this is not one of your better ideas so i should just drop it because it it just can't go anywhere but he was so disinclined toward anything like that and always tried to keep it at an absolute minimum because it's not good for people on one side it's not good for either side of the equation for you to expect people to listen to you because after all i am the i have this position i am the manager i am in charge i am the director i am the spiritual counselor i am this therefore you should do this or the other side well he's my manager or my spiritual director or something especially bad when it got spiritual i have to do what he says well you need to cooperate but that's different And it's so much more magnetic, it's so much more powerful if everything happens because of magnetism. There was a woman who who was very frustrated because she had the karma for no one to listen to her. And she was actually very bright and had many good ideas. I've been reviewing a lot of my own life history. And um, I I read a lot of the stuff that she did, and it was all quite good. But at the time, I didn't like any of it. In fact, at the time, I loathed all of it. Because there was was just karma around her. And I mean, Swami just even said it, you know, misuse of power in the past means that nobody listens to her now. And she knows that she has good ideas and should be listened to, but nobody would listen to her. And uh, now let me think, what, what was the point of that? Um, oh, yes, but when we were doing this big project, she... She really had something to contribute, but nobody would listen to her, so she wanted me, who was in a position to make decisions, to establish a system in which everyone would have to listen to her. (laughs) I couldn't. I said to her, I said, I could put up the most airtight system you like and they'll work around you. I promise you they will. First of all, because Ananda people, very independent. And I said, make yourself helpful. If you make yourself helpful, then they'll come to you. If you're not helpful, it doesn't matter what I tell them to do, they won't come to you. And, and, then, and I heard that myself. I've always thought about that. Just make yourself helpful to people. Don't think about what position you're in or who's supposed to do what. Because people will go where they feel benefited. And if they're forced to come to you and you're of no benefit, they'll just sit there and they'll endure it, but they'll never take anything in. I mean, whether you're in a, in a corporate situation or an ashram, just exude, give positive magnetism. You lead by your consciousness. Lead by your magnetism. And then the whole question of cooperation, obedience, it just never comes up. You know, and, and if you have to just get what you want by asserting your position, from the Ananda point of view, you've already lost. You might as well just retire. I know in a corporate setting or a business setting, it all has to be different because it's a wholly different world. But in in real life, if if the only power you have is because of your title, um, you, you really need to think about what's going on, see if you can find a way to be different. I know it's different than it is inside, than ananda. When Swami was talking about the highest yugas, he said, well, it's still the material world, it's still not divine, it's really still not enough. He said, but the thing in the higher yuga he said, people like us are in charge. <laughs> That's how he put it. And I said, so the whole world operates like Ananda. He said, yeah. You know, it's just a higher vibration of consciousness. Now we're this unique pocket and that we just live in this world where everybody else is operating on different values. Imagine a whole planet where everybody operates on the values like we do. Well, someday maybe we'll live in it. Maybe we'll be God-realized before we do. Or maybe it wouldn't serve us that was Swami's comment. No, thank you. I don't want to come back even for that. Well, let's take a break. I ran us a little long. Okay. Um, does anyone have a question or a comment tonight? We've been—I've been just hogging the mic. That I do anyway. But okay, um, it's my job. It's my position. It's my right. <laughs> uh, we had a little a little conversation about "Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way." The, the hymn, a devout Christian person said, "It's been her favorite song for a long time." <laughs> so that, so we're a little in trouble here. So I felt I needed to say a little bit more. Also, several people, including me, were trying to think about "From Whispers from Eternity." I couldn't have recited the number, but number seventy-two. Which is called, O Divine Sculptor, Chisel Thou My Life. And that was in the back of my mind, the difference between the potter and the sculptor. I mean, the sculptor has to work with a chisel and a rock, but the words to this whole chant, uh, the whole hymn, are Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Maybe you shouldn't be that it, it? <laughs> Have the, do you want to sing it for us? Yeah, saying, you do you want to sing it? No, and you're the only one. Let's go ahead strong, Here, give her the mic. An have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way, thou art the potter, and I am the clay, mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Wow. Well, Saranya has very positive associations with that song. Unfortunately, your singing it for me did not sound enough different from the way Swami sang it to me. <laughs> Just the way I am. I can't help it. Trisha has something to say. Uh-huh. It seems like there's a little bit of a fine line happening between the passivity yes, and exactly. surrender. Yes. Which in Ananda is... I just, I wanted to go a little more serious on it. But okay. okay, I'll go a little more serious on it now. Because surrender to God is very important. And it's, I don't think Swami liked the melody very much either. I think it's a little bit of a dirge, but that's, you know, I don't want to be too rude. I'm so prejudiced against it. It's hard for me. So let me do, O Divine Sculptor, Chisel down My Life. This is what Master says and the same basic theme. You know, this is an answer because this is a famous, this is a very famous hymn. Every sound that I make, let it have the vibration of thy voice. Every thought that I think, let it be saturated with the consciousness of thy presence. Let every feeling that I have glow with thy love, let every act of my will be impregnated with thy divine vitality, let every thought, every expression, every ambition be ornamented by thee. O divine sculpture, sculptor, chisel thou my life according to thy design. It's really it's it's not a different thought, really, but it's it's just phrased in a slightly different attitude because it's also as as Tantva pointed out, you know i 'm going to do this now, help me i 'm going to do this now, help me, every sound that I make, let it have your vibration, every thought that I think, let it be saturated with your presence there's there's a, an active quality to the devotee, but nonetheless the invitation is still that whatever it turns out to be let it let it be guided by you. Um, Someone else was talking to me during the break and talking about trying to understand how God is the doer. And he came up with the word cooperation. Invite me to cooperate with you, Lord. You know, invite me to cooperate. And that makes it active. What what Swami doesn't like, you know, while I'm waiting, yielded and still. Now, on the other side... Yes, of course. I mean, I know that you do, and I'm not really going to defend or attack the song. As I was attacking the song, I was feeling a little bad. <laughs> and I was also thinking about the... Because I have his... his he, he, he could do it, I shouldn't. And I was quoting him, but I was endorsing what he said. <laughs> but uh, surrender... You know, there, Swami uses the word surrender, and a lot of people use the word surrender, but Swami often also has talked against the word surrender. Because you only surrender at, at, at a point of absolute weakness. You know, you surrender implies that you, you know, you had, you tried everything else. And of course, there's, there's right to that. But you surrender because you're overpowered. Whereas self-offering, you're in a position where you have the strength, but you have made a conscious choice. And there, and he he still will use the word surrender, but I've also heard him talk against it in that way and say self-offering is really what we're trying to say. I am in complete command of myself here, but I have made a decision that tells me that I recognize I've reached my limit and I have to participate in a greater reality because just operating from my own strength is not taking me to where I want to go. And I mean, the idea of surrender can imply and yes, I know these are just words, and they mean—you can say home, you can say mother, you can say father. It means something completely different to everybody. So it's not a matter of semantics, but it's just a way of understanding it. Surrender can also imply that you're going to be imprisoned, and if possible, escape. I mean, you know, it's it's part of the language. If you take the action yourself and put yourself in that position it's where you want to be. If you've only surrendered then you might recover and want to go out and do another revolt. And, of course, then there's a very positive side. But those are the nuances that Swami's trying to touch here and that Master was trying to touch, which is why it's relevant in this point. You have to cooperate with it. Yes, to completely suspend your own egoic preferences and open yourself entirely to God, it can also be argued that that's what it means. And if that's what it means, that's great. The melody is not dynamic, but that's just my personal opinion. It doesn't really make any difference. If it works for you, it works for you. It just depends on what it actually means. It's the same thing we were saying the whole time. It's not the form, it's the consciousness. Even in our discipleship vow, you know, which is very long, often so long, Mother, I've sought sought thee for myself, not for your love. I found that as long as I presumed on thy will, it it escaped me. I wanted this, I wanted that. Now I just give it all up And just whatever you want me to do, chisel thou my life. And we've pushed it as far as we can push it on our own. And now, of our own free will, we recognize cooperation. When I was growing up, um, uh, I had this very quick mind and this verbal ability, which in our American society, basically, everybody thinks that, that makes you capable. You know, they don't ask if you're nice, if you're happy, or anything. They just... If, you can, if you're can, if you school smart. And I was very school smart. So there was this expectation of excellence. But because of my karma, because I was really destined for the spiritual path, I was perfectly aware of the, the fact that school smart was not wise. So people just put them together. And I knew so completely that I was not wise that the more um, praise I got for being school smart, the more schizophrenic I felt inside because I knew absolutely that I knew what I was doing and not, none of that which seemed to be so important to everyone else was going to give me anything I wanted but but nobody around me had any clue that that was so or had any idea what to offer me but uh, it, it was like the more I was praised the more I was terrified you know, it became very quite intense then I found the spiritual path but it's that, I'd been there and done that. I'd pushed all that talent as far as it could go and it didn't take me anywhere. Where, what was beyond it? What was on the other side of it? And you just have to come to that. That's a point of surrender. And that's, but that's also a point of conscious cooperation. That's why when the self-realization and then Swami Kriyananda came into my life, I never looked back. It was no sacrifice. It was just joy, joy, joy. Thank God there's a gate out of this. The sacrifice was where I was standing. You know, oh dear, I'm just going to be successful in this life? It was terrifying. And I wasn't going to be successful either because I couldn't do it, but it was terrifying. So you surrender at that point. It is surrender. You're absolutely, it's beat you. It's definitely beat you. You have to just give in to it. Mm -hmm. Does that balance it enough? We can wait, yielding and steal still if we want to. Okay. Shall I go on? Number forty-eight. The Master did not belittle the importance, however, of bringing the ego to heal. Often he even played with us, so to speak, to help us to take the e- not to take the ego too seriously. Once he and Doctor Lewis spent the night in a hotel. The next morning, both of them, with the Master's encouragement. Went out of doors to practice the energization exercises. The layout of the hotel was such that these exercises would have to be done in full public view. Dr. Lewis was always the proper Bostonian and felt intensely sensitive to the social proprieties. It embarrassed him, therefore, to be doing anything so unusual in public. The master took this opportunity to help him conquer his exaggerated sensitivity. His way of doing so was first to increase the embarrassment. A policeman walked by on his beat. The master ducked hastily behind a pillar, as if anxious not to be seen. The policeman glanced over but said nothing. A few minutes later, he returned. Once again, the master stepped hastily behind the pillar. (coughs) This time, the policeman stopped. His suspicions aroused. "'What's going on here?' he demanded. "'Oh, nothing, officer, nothing at all,' the master smiled winningly, as if anxious to convince the policeman of his complete innocence. "'We're just exercising, see?' He repeated one or two movements as if in hope of a reprieve. "'Well,' growled the policeman, "'see that you don't get into trouble.' (laughs) Dr. Lewis, who had been thinking he might die of shame... (laughs) At last, saw the fun of the situation and accepted it with good humor. Often, he related this story later on to delighted audiences. Together, they always laughed heartily. (laughs) That's just a fun story. I don't know if there's anything more to say about it. Here's the. um, This is another interesting one. Sri Das, number forty-nine. Pardon me. Yes, definitely. Actually, actually, there's probably more to say about Dr. Lewis. Just what I noticed was the bit where it said his way of helping him overcome his Mm -hmm. embarrassment was to increase it. And that's something I've seen pop up in other stories also. And it's it's interesting because from one perspective, you might think, oh, well, if I don't want to be embarrassed, you know, I should practice not feeling embarrassed. The master actually just pushed you all the way to the end of embarrassment and off the cliff at the end. And then, you know, then he's somewhere else. Yeah. So it's just interesting, that that approach. Right. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because I really did want to talk about that. Is there anyone else who wants to comment? Um, I've noticed that with a lot of karma, that we, we, it has to get, we tend, as long as we can manage it, so Master, uh, so Dr. Lewis had this quality, which is he was a proper Bostonian and he was intensely sensitive to social proprieties when uh, if you remember the meeting of the master play and when uh, they were doing doctor and mrs lewis and it was whatever it was 1920 something in a, ma- a small massachusetts town where you, they hardly ever saw a, probably a person with dark skin and certainly not a hindu and he was dressed in this outlandish manner and they made such a huge point of he was dressed in this orange outfit and he had maybe he had a turban on his head and i mean just that alone was just so shocking to them that just nobody in this town behaves this way. So one has this thought that this is the proper way of behaving. So you're always in situations where everybody's behaving properly. And you don't even, you don't even know it's a fault. It's just this is the way things are done and it's the proper way things are done so that's the way that we do them. And it, you, it has to be exposed to you that it's a limitation before you'll even begin to work on it. Because otherwise we just coast along very few people are capable or, or, or you know, just have the willpower to actually just all on your own appropriately uncover your limitations. They have to be pushed out of us. So very often, and that's why Master would do it, he wants you to really see. Because there, there he is, Dr. Lewis, he's with his guru, they're doing the energization exercises. What, what possible element of this is something to be ashamed of? or embarrassed about even. But Master had to push him all the way out there until he could suddenly see that Master was having such a great time and Dr. Lewis really loved him, of course, and trusted him. And so he has to suddenly stop and ask what's really happening here. And then then that's when you begin to see, oh, this is just a very small-minded thing on my part. This isn't really real. And the other side of it, more intensely, I've, I've seen for all of us, I've certainly seen it in my own life, that many, many things in my upbringing, rather than mitigating my bad qualities, intensified them. And when I knew about reincarnation, I thought to myself, why didn't I get born somewhere that would balance these qualities instead of aggravating them? But I realized that because they were aggravated, guess what? I noticed. And I wasn't ready to give them up. So I couldn't have attracted to myself an upbringing that would have balanced them because I wouldn't have accepted it. I wouldn't have seen it. Well, most of all, I didn't have the magnetism because I thought of these things as virtues. Or at least I wasn't really ready to acknowledge them as faults. But when it gets bad enough, then you break one way or another. You either just harden into your position, and there's a couple of uh, down from here, Swami tells the story of, of Master making fun of Bernard with his turban, um, making him look foolish with the turban, but Swami makes a point that Dr. Lewis often told the story on himself, but Bernard never mentioned it. And that only Swami heard it from someone else, who, as he said, told it humorously but kindly, but Bernard never mentioned it. And Bernard also did not stay in the ashram. He left. And you know, it's just like he couldn't understand that his desire to look dignified and attractive was um, a fault, not a virtue. So it's a very real point. That's why master would do it because then you catch it yourself. Otherwise, he said, now you should be less vain, you should be less you know, sensitive like this. But instead he lets you experience it and you get to realize, "Oh, well, there's really nothing here. And we get to experience, oh, I'm going to be, you know, uh, successful in this way. You know, I'm going to get all my happiness from winning this. And I'm going to be a big status thing over here. And I'm going to have all the family over here. And I'm going to have all this stuff. You, you get to do it. Now, those things in themselves are not a fault. That's not arrogance or selfishness. But it's like you get to play it out to the end. So it might occur to you that maybe this isn't what I really want to be doing. So whether you call it the fault of selfishness or arrogance or something like that and you get the consequences of it which you think of as negative well that'll teach you. But there's a very important fact of spiritual life of life which is you learn more from getting what you want. Because when you get what you want you get to find out how happy it will make you. And that's when the real learning comes because oh look I have everything and it's still not working for me. I mean, I was, born, I was born into that one a little bit. That's why I say it was my karma. I came to the path so early and so completely. It was just like, you know, I could, I could do all this. I could just do this. It's in me to do this. It's not going to be a big deal to do this. But I already knew where, what the end of the road would feel like. And I could tell that it wasn't going to make me happy. How can you know that? Because you've done it. It's been pushed to that point. Whether it's embarrassment, success, failure, arrogance, selfishness, it just has to get pushed to the point where the whole experience is there in front of you. And then you start thinking about something else. Otherwise we don't. I remember that I had this terrible relationship with this person and I thought I was free of it and blah, 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 and then I just actually had just been, I just didn't have to be with them at all. So as soon as they were away I thought they were, everything was fine. Then I had the opportunity to be with them again and I was feeling so kind and open-hearted that I just embraced the opportunity in about 30 minutes I had just was ready to kill them. <laughs> just like, you know, like I had made no progress, none, zero. And I was just devastated. And I was just, I was weeping. I was in the car with Swami. Oh, Swami, I'm so glad. He says, well, this is the good news. He said, you thought you were free of this and you weren't. You were, we weren't putting out any energy to overcome it because you thought it was gone. He said, so now you know. I'm just so casual like this. So now you know. But that's if we don't know, we can't do anything. Dr. Lewis saw the joke. And he started laughing. Apparently Bernard never saw the joke. And he didn't stay in the ashram, interestingly. Okay. I'll see you in two weeks. I'll see you before then, but I'll see you here in two weeks. Okay just like we need to we need to put on the recording that we did number 46 47 48